Oh, yeah, I'm not done for the night, apparently. Not done talking. I took a nap. And I don't do that. I find naps really depressing. Even going back to when I was a little kid, I always found naps extremely depressing. And so, I mean, I've had to take like three naps in the last few days, which is a sign something's going on with me. I've just been hitting this wall of exhaustion in the evening. And it's not even like, it's, it's not even one of those things where I consciously am like, oh, it would be nice to take a nap. I bet I'd feel better. I just have to. Like, I just sort of involuntarily fall asleep for a little bit, and I wake up feeling a little bit better. But I know if I'm napping, something is definitely going on with my body. But funny enough, I woke up at 11.59 from my nap, right as the clock struck midnight. So I'm now older. Funny how that works. Um, it's All it takes is a minute to become older in this world. And uh, it's funny, I'm actually going to talk about age a little bit. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, because for years now, there's been a debate over whether online anonymity is a good thing. Or specifically, people saying it's a bad thing and we should get rid of it. There's politicians who support legislation that would get rid of online anonymity, which I think is a terrible idea. Because it plays into something that you used to hear many years ago. When I first got online, you would often hear people say in arguments, you're only saying that because you're hiding behind a keyboard. You're only saying that because you're you're hiding behind a keyboard and... If you would show your face, if you'd show your face and your name, you wouldn't be saying that. And there was this sort of, I don't know what to call it, like almost like a, just like a a mythology, you know, a myth that the reason why people are nasty online is because they're hiding behind their anonymity. That idea was promoted everywhere. And people would always resort to that. Oh, the only reason you're saying that is because you're not showing your face. And I didn't realize this, but that goes back way longer. Like when I talked to Michael DeLeonardo, the former mafia guy, he was talking about somebody and he was like, yeah, he, this guy, he, he's what we used to call a telephone tough guy. He's the kind of guy who would act real tough on the phone, but he would never do that in person. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Of course. I never thought about that as a kid. Like, yeah, you would prank people. Pranking was an anonymous act. You don't call somebody when you're making a prank phone call and go, just so you know, this is Eric pranking you. You know, what makes pranking effective is that it's anonymous. But I never thought about it with just arguments and fighting with somebody. Obviously, I knew people get into phone arguments, but I never thought about somebody being like, I never thought about mafia guys being like, you're just a telephone tough guy. So the idea of the keyboard warrior, because that's what you used used to hear it referred to as, he's a keyboard warrior. Yeah, he's a keyboard warrior. Just funny to me that they had a term for that back then when people were just talking on the phone. But the keyboard warrior idea was very big in the earlier days of the internet where, oh, you're just hiding behind your anonymity. And we've seen where that was a total myth. That was people who said that completely miscalculated because we've seen where people have started posting under their own names on Facebook and Twitter, and they say incredibly nasty things. I'll come across things that people say where they'll just be like, I hope that everybody who believes this dies. They're very blunt. And you'll see their face and their real name. There's people I know personally who do things like this. They'll make extremely nasty comments under their own name, and they will fight. 
So we can see that that anonymity wasn't the that wasn't the component that stripped us of, that stripped us of our civility. You know, there's something inside of us that no matter whether we have our name attached or not, you know, I think the biggest factor with anonymity is where the political power is. Where people are able to get away with saying incredibly nasty and even violent things if their views line up with the current political power, social and cultural power. So you can get away with saying extremely antisocial things if your overall viewpoint is viewed as socially or culturally acceptable. But people, they they do it under under their real names constantly. They say extremely terrible things with few, if any, repercussions. So anonymity wasn't protecting people. I mean, anonymity seems to, it allows people to be tricksters and pranksters in the same way that prank phone calls needed you to be anonymous. So there's certain styles of humor. I mean, I've never used the term troll. I've never used that. I don't like it. I like ideas like the trickster, but we can see where like just the troll is a much older idea. It's an eternal idea. You know, Carl, one of the the Jungian archetypes was the trickster, which I think Carl Jung, because he talked about some of his archetypes being like two archetypes being different sides of the same coin. And if I remember right, he talked about the trickster being the other side of the coin from the wise old man, from the sage, which makes sense to me. It makes sense that he would relate those, that he would link those. But the trickster, being a trickster is important. You know, getting a little Loki in you now and again is important. Um, But uh, we can see where online anonymity is a major asset to being a trickster. And I I have no interest in trolls, as they call them. I have no interest in what's typically called trolling. But we can see where just sense of humor in general, because all sense of humor kind of comes from that trickster core, the tricks, what we call the trickster core. Now, we can see where all sense of humor has that element to it, if it's actually funny. If, if humor is actually funny, because believe it or not, not all humor is very funny. But if it's actually funny, there's often something provocative about it. And that need to provoke, that need to be a little bit provocative, not necessarily edgy, but simply provocative, kind of comes from the, what we, we're, calling, we're calling it the trickster core. And you know, Carl Jung relating the old man, the sage, to the trickster makes sense to me, too, because there's kind of an old stereotype about somebody's grandpa. You know, somebody's grandpa is the guy who imparts seasoned advice to his grandson, but he's also the one who pulls little pranks. And he's like, hey, let's prank grandma. Hey, I'm going to give you some advice that I've learned over 70 years of hard living. But then turn around and be like, hey, let's hide grandma's baking mitt in the toilet tank. You know, it makes sense to me that those things, not that it's that literal, not that the two sides of that archetype are that literal, but we can see where a grandpa will do both of those things. You know, it's just funny. Um, but yeah, I'm opposed to 
I'm, I'm certainly opposed to this anti or this anti anonymity legislation that politicians have proposed because they think that'll make things better. I think some of it comes from a, an honest place. I don't think all of it comes from simply trying to expose political opponents, although that's part of it. There is a very cynical side to anti-anonymity legislation. But there's also a more pure and honest point of view, which is like, I think that this is contributing to all the toxic conversations going on online that's making our country more divided. But it's not that simple, because we see that those toxic conversations take place even when people aren't anonymous. They often take place under people's real names. And it's important to be able to express subversive ideas. I mean, do you feel that an artist should have to put their real name? I mean, it gets into pen names. And we've seen where important books have been published under authoritarian regimes. And the only reason the author was able to do it is because they used a pen name. Or if you want to you know, bring gender into it, you can see where women who otherwise might not have had their work acknowledged once used pen names as well. You know, we can see that there's a lot of value. It's the value of anonymity or pseudonymity is multifaceted. And that's more of what it is. You know, what people call anonymity is more pseudonymity, where it's not that people are, it's not that a lot of this is coming from a place where somebody is just, you know, yeah, there's stuff like 4chan where people are known for being 100% anonymous. But for the most part, when people talk about internet anonymity, they're actually talking about people using pseudonyms. And we've seen where people who develop a following, who develop a significant presence online under a pseudonym, they become attached to that pseudonym. Sometimes they even make money off of it, or at the very least, it's what it, it's what allows people to access their work and their ideas. They want to use that pseudonym. So it's not that they're just an anonymous person. They're just simply using another name, which has always had value. You know, we can see that with publishing. But, you know, even though I am very against this anti-anonymity idea... I do like the idea of forcing people to have their true age next to everything they say. I don't actually believe people should have to do that. I just think it would be a very helpful tool. Not because I want to judge people for being too old or too young. Not that I would dismiss people when I find out they're a certain age. And that can go both ways. You know, if you find out that somebody's a lot younger than you initially thought or assumed... You might be like, oh, they're so young. They've never had any life experience. So you can just throw everything they say out. They're just a baby. Who wants to listen to a baby? And you could think that way, but you can see where it's also popular to dismiss people for being out of touch and old. And that's where this whole like awful buzz, buzz word catchphrase, okay, boomer. You can see where that's the source of all that. Basically a way of saying you're out of touch and your opinions suck because you're old. And I, don't, I try not to use the phrase boomer. I will say baby boomer because that's what they've always been called. That's the that's always been the name of that generation. But I try not to use boomer, you know, for the same reasons I explained in all the episodes about mind control and the role that catchphrases and buzzwords play in mind control and not government imposed, not top down mind control. 
Because when we think about mind control, we often think about it as something that the powers that be, the governments and institutions are imposing on us top down. They're controlling our minds. And we can see that the mind control that goes on socially from the bottom up can be just as nefarious. And so I try to avoid catchphrases and buzzwords because it's become, with the popularity of the internet, it's become that much more apparent how horrible that form of mind control is that sneaks into people's brains through the use of buzzwords and catchphrases. So I I try not to use boomer for that reason alone, even though I will say they're baby boomers, the baby bombers, the baby boomers. I will call them the full baby boomer. Because that's not the, it's not, it's, it has a different meaning to say that. Amazingly, it has a different meaning to call somebody a baby boomer versus just boomer. Boomer. But I have no interest, like, I would like to see people's ages when they say something, because it would just be an effective tool. Because you would be able to say, okay, that person's had a, li- a lot of life experience, but they're also missing the perspective that a younger person might have. And then when you see something that a younger person says, you can say, okay, they're fresh. They might have a very fresh take. They might have learned something about the modern world that older people haven't. They have something to offer, but their ideas are still developing, and they might not have been considering these ideas for very long. Because I have found myself, you know, I'm, I'm a young man. You know, I just turned 36 an hour ago. I'm a young man. But I have found that... Sometimes when I find out someone's under the age of 30, I'll take their opinion less seriously. And I think a part of that is the fact, you know, similar to what I was saying about fashion and recurring trends, how, you know, it used to be every 20 years people would revisit a previous trend because, you know, the immediate trends before that, like in 1990, the trends from the 80s were too recent. And we can see that like at the start of a new decade, and I don't think these things, I don't think trends operate just in a strict 10 year period where 1990 to 2000, but we can see where usually people are very averse to the trends that immediately preceded them, which is why in the mid nineties, people kind of took on a more of a seventies fashion aesthetic for a while. Um, In the eighties, there were people kind of revisiting you know, ideas from 20 years before that. But how as the Ouroboros has swallowed more of its own tail, I think the rate at which trends come back is much quicker and they stick around far less for less time. But we've also seen where, you know, this has been a a major, you know, it's just kind of anecdotal, but people have been saying this for a long time. You can't actually measure it. But the idea that like, oh, 20 is the, or 30 is the new 20. 40 is the new 30. And I think there's truth to that. I think that each generation is staying younger for longer. And as a result, like when I see what 20 year old, not, not, not even 20 year olds, but people in their 20s at all, when I see what they're saying, sometimes I do feel like they're still teenagers, not because they're younger than me, but it just seems like being a teenager has extended well into people's 20s and maybe into their 30s and beyond. We see where a lot more people today are permanent teenagers, myself possibly included. You know, I'm willing to admit that I might be a permanent teenager in some ways. A permatine. You're a permatine? 
But I think that people have stayed younger for longer in this world. I mean, we can just see since the teenage revolution, where it used to be, you know, before the 1950s, it was not uncommon for men to go straight from school, if they even graduated, to just working and starting a family. And so this idea of it used to be where it's like, oh, no, you know, you know, a couple generations ago, the like, you know, with the baby boomers, maybe there was this idea that, oh, you know, don't worry about don't worry about being an adult yet in your 20s. Go to college and party and then get a job, but still kind of have fun. Don't worry about settling down and how now that's gone into people's 30s. Where I know very few people who have settled down even in even as of their mid 30s, even people who might want to. You see where fewer and fewer people are settling down earlier and by not settling down, they're kind of retaining this youth. But when you retain youth, you know, you also have a tendency to still act like a freaking baby or a teenager. You have a tendency to act like a permatine. So there's an upside and a downside. It's not all just having fun. It's not all just, you know, it gets more and more sad too. The longer that somebody acts like a teenager, the more sad it gets. Like the older guy who parties with teenagers, who parties with high schoolers, has always been a negative stereotype. He's always either been a loser or a creep. And you look at him and say, huh, you know, why do you even want to hang out with high schoolers? It's not seen as a good thing. People don't look at that guy. They don't think of the guy who's 22 even, who hangs out with high schoolers and think, oh man, it's so cool that he's hung on to his youth. They think he's a loser. Why isn't he hanging out with people who are his age or older? But yeah, seeing people's ages online, I feel like it would be a good tool. And I don't, I don't actually feel that that should be required. But I feel like it's more important than pronouns. You know, with all this emphasis on identifying your pronouns within the first two seconds of meeting somebody, I feel like it would be way more effective to just say your age. Because I do realize I have a harder and harder time even knowing what age someone is especially with the way that people are so decorated now and the way that fashion ten, like fashion trends seem to happen along a much wider spectrum of ages. So it can be harder to immediately identify somebody, especially online. But I would say even in person, I find that unless somebody just straight up looks young, I have a tendency to assume they're closer to my age. But when I find out that someone is younger, I go, oh, okay. And when that person has some hardline opinion about something, especially, I go, okay, I have to factor in their age. So knowing somebody's ages, I feel like, would be a way more effective tool for understanding where someone is coming from than some of these other superficial identifiers that have been given so much emphasis. Okay, you told me your pronouns. Now let me know your age. Not so I can dismiss you. Just it's good information. You know, it's good data. I'm looking for some good data. Tell me your age. Because, you know, when I was young, I didn't like being dismissed. People would sometimes dismiss me for my age. I mean, they still do on occasion. I've had conversations with people before who are a bit older where I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, when I turned 30, I didn't think anything was going to change, and it did. My perspective is different in my 30s than it was in my 20s or my teens. And sometimes you'll say that to somebody who's in their 40s, and they'll be like, yeah, well, get back to me when you're in your 40s. Yeah, well, you'll see that it'll really change when you're in your 40s. You don't know nothing. 
Oh, you think that? Oh, you think turning forty was a big deal, and and things changed? Get back to me when you're fifty, when you're sixty, when you're dead. Get back to me when you're dead, and you'll see. That's actually a good point. Somebody said that. That'd be a good point. Because I guarantee you, dead people know something that we don't. Get back to me when you're dead. Oh, you think things are different now? Oh, you turn 30, you hit that milestone? Get back to me when you're dead. But yeah, knowing people's ages, I just feel like that would be effective. Um, but uh, with, with older people, it's interesting with older people because they have access to more of the same information that younger people have now. And younger people will always manage to find a way to develop their own culture, to develop their own ideas and their own slang, their own fashion. Because they're trying to, for one. You know, older generations are usually trying to hold on to something that they cherished when they were younger. And be like, oh, yeah, when I, I mean, I do that all the time. Oh, when I was your age, I mean, we like good music. And we wore cool clothes and said cool things. The things you're saying and doing and listening to, they suck. So older people, you know, when they say that older people become more conservative, the idea that like, oh, as you age, you become more conservative. It's not even necessarily that people become more politically conservative. They become more Republican. It's that they sort of look back through the lens of nostalgia and think like, well, I kind of wish things were the way they were when I was younger and that we would hold on to more of that because I personally think it's better. And that describes me to a T. I do feel that things used to be better. The things that I value used to be better. And I know there are flaws in that way of thinking, but I think it's just natural. And so I've accepted that. And it's fun to say that, you know, that's one of the benefits of getting older is that you can now say that. But some people are desperate to say that. Some people are like, I, I feel so old. Oh, my God. Did you know that Mean Girls came out 20 years ago? I feel so old. Oh, my back's hurting. Oh, I feel so old. Some people really want to feel old. They want to be able to say that. But guess what? You'll naturally start to feel that way either way. To me, if you're if you're saying like, oh, dude, Mean Girls came out 20 years ago. I feel freaking old. You're still young if you're thinking that way. But going back to the anonymity idea, you know, Jordan Peterson, who I really like, I really like Jordan Peterson, first became aware of him around probably 2015. I think he's just a good, he's kind of like Metallica or something. Where he gets a lot of criticism, even from people who agree with him more than they disagree with him. That's interesting to see is that it's not just the people who have created this false controversy surrounding him. And it is a false controversy. I don't think he's controversial at all. I don't think his ideas are even remotely controversial. And I always try to make make it a point to say that where this isn't controversial. Just because some people have created a controversy surrounding it, I don't accept that controversy. I simply don't accept it sometimes. Some things are genuinely controversial. But other times you see where it's completely manufactured. And in his case, it's one of the more insidiously manufactured controversies I've ever seen, to be honest, because he's just his, his views are just generally middle of the road. 
which is why, you know, right wing people will criticize him, too, for not being extreme enough. That's the funny thing is he gets called far right now. Like when he first showed up around 2015, 2016, people were like, well, he's just a he's a traditional liberal, which I think is still how I view him. But just as the Overton window has shifted, you see where people just straight up call him far right, which is funny. It's like, I, 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 I hate to tell you guys, but I don't think he's changed. You got to consider that maybe you've changed. Maybe you've gone further to a certain side. But we can see because he is that sort of classical liberal thinker, you can see that it's not just the people who have created this false controversy and think he's far right. But you can see where people who actually are far right, especially younger people, again, the age thing plays a role, can be very critical of him because he's not extreme enough. But it's like his whole thing is he's never been trying to pander to you either. But what got me thinking about him is he, well, he's kind of like Metallica. <laughs> he's like Metallica in the sense that a lot of his ideas are just universal, which is one reason why people can be dismissive. Like one of the criticisms I've heard of Jordan Peterson that come from people all over the spectrum, all over the political and philosophical spectrum is his ideas are so obvious. Everything he says is just so obvious. But that's because epiphanies are often obvious. And there are a lot of people who have had epiphanies when listening to Jordan Peterson, because he's very skilled at stating the obvious in ways that make the obvious relevant to you. And uh, that's a very important skill to have, because to be able to do that and to not have it sound like you're just repeating motivational cliches and platitudes, it's hard to do that. Almost impossible, actually. It's almost impossible to give people advice or to share insight with people that is sort of obvious, but to also get that light bulb moment from it. So the fact that he was able to do that, especially some years back, is very impressive. Whether you like what he says or don't, it's just a very impressive skill for someone to have. And in that way, he's like Metallica, where, you know, sometimes you'll think, oh, you know, Metallica, like I love classic Metallica. I love the old Metallica albums. You know, one of the first metal bands I ever got into. But it's easy to kind of think, well, Metallica is not really what I'm all about. Like, I wouldn't define myself as a Metallica fan. I wouldn't be like, oh, what it all boils down to for me is Metallica. It all bo- I'm just a Metallica guy. I would never describe myself that way, even though I love Metallica. Even though Metallica was a foundation for me. I would never think of myself as a Metallica guy, and I would never think of myself as a Jordan Peterson guy either. But I think he he operates in sort of the same place as a band like Metallica, where it's like, when you listen to him, you're like, oh yeah, this is good. This is just really good universal material. And it, it doesn't sound like anybody else. But yet, because of what it is, it, it seems obvious. Like, if you listen to Metallica, like classic Metallica, listen to Ride the Lightning, you go, okay, I've heard this before, and it seems obvious. But what else sounds like that? What other band sounds like that? And Metallica is a gateway for a lot of people. And I think Jordan Peterson was as well. Well, there's a lot of people who are part of this more right-leaning counterculture who weren't always right-wing. 
and particularly the people who found Christianity through the counterculture. Because, you know, growing up, Christianity was always something that you accessed, you know, from the top down. Like, there really was never a grassroots Christian movement when I was growing up. I know they existed, but it really, it wasn't significant. So Christianity was always something that felt like you were joining the system. It felt like you were joining the powers that be. So as a result, you know, somebody who's rebellious by nature wasn't going to become Christian that way. You're not going to, you're basically, you know, joining the powers that be if you became a Christian, you know, before 2015. But since then, you know, Christianity's picked up a lot of steam. You know, I've been referring to it on this show for a few years now. It's become very pagan. And I, I, I don't really have the words to fully explain what I mean, to fully describe what I mean. But I see the current counterculture Christian movement as more of a pagan phenomenon in some way, because it's come from the bottom up. But interestingly, Jordan Peterson played a big role in that, where he did those biblical lectures, and he, he has discussed his interpretation of the Bible a lot from an agnostic perspective. But there's a lot of people out there who became Christians because of him. There are a lot of people out there who identify as Christian today and practice Christianity of different kinds because Jordan Peterson's interpretations of Christianity were that powerful to them. But you know what? Some of them would never admit it. Some of those people, they would never admit that they became Christian after 2016 because an agnostic Canadian professor happened to talk about Christianity in a way that was refreshing, in a way that a lot of people hadn't heard it discussed. But that's the truth. A lot of people out there became Christians because they heard Jordan Peterson give his perspective on it, and it was refreshing. I'm not a Christian, but I paid careful attention to this new kind of Christian counterculture that's developed. It's... I don't know how aware people are of it. I've started calling it, you know, sort of the new Christian movement. And I find it fascinating because, you know, I've developed a, a greater interest in Christianity. And while it wasn't directly informed by Jordan Peterson, I would never say that he played no role because I, I do remember listening to his biblical lectures and being like, wow, that's amazing. I never thought about that parable that way. That gets me thinking. I never realized how that relates to this. So he, you know, even being somebody who wasn't directly inspired to take a greater interest in Christianity. I mean, I have a friend who's a, um, he's in his 50s and he lives in Sweden. I know him through music. Very respected guy. And he, he's now a Christian. And he's a very unique, individual-minded person. Everybody who knows him would say that. And he and I were having long phone conversations around, probably around that time, 2016, 2017, and he was very into Jordan Peterson. This guy, he's, you know, he has two fully grown kids, and he lives in Sweden, but we were discussing Jordan Peterson, and, and, you know, he was, at that time, I don't think my friend in Sweden had actually become a Christian yet, but we were talking about some of these ideas, and we brought up, we were discussing Jordan Peterson, and so, I mean, he, he's been part of this conversation all along, and I've seen where particularly young men who are in their 20s and 30s were directly inspired 
to take an interest in Christianity, and now many of them are Christians. But what's funny is some of them have become zealots. That's why the age thing comes in, because some of these guys are young, and you can see where they're they're following some of the same patterns that they would have rejected 20 or 30 years ago. Like they're taking on some of the viewpoints that the evangelical conservative right already kind of flattened. You know, some of the dogmatism, like where it's given them an identity. And I've seen this on social media where some of these new Christians who are almost all young men, they broadcast their denomination and their faith in the same way that people on the other side broadcast their pronouns and their highly specific new gender identity. It's very much an identity thing to them. And I'm not saying they don't have true faith. I'm not saying that they aren't fully invested in that. But you can see where they broadcast it in this very similar way, where it's very much about an identity. And a large part of that is because being a Christian in my generation is very much a counterculture statement. It came from the bottom up rather than the top down like it used to. And there's a lot of pushback on Christianity, especially socially and culturally. There's a lot of pushback on what it is to be a Christian in today's West. Even though we live in a a Western society that was dominated by Christianity and is still entirely, you know, our, our moral framework, many of our laws are still Christian-inspired, if not Christian. But we can see where like something shifted, and being a Christian in my generation, especially if you don't come from a typical Christian household, like this might be an entirely different conversation if we were talking about the South. This might be entirely, an entirely different conversation if we're talking about Texas. But I'm talking about the coasts. I'm talking about cities. I'm talking about men who came up possibly considering themselves themselves atheists or agnostics who gain this newfound sense of faith and there's a lot of people who I'm describing here this isn't this isn't as small of a niche it doesn't really get a lot of coverage because I don't think people are that aware of it but it's something that I've been closely following for I'd say about 5 or 6 years I mean what's going to be 2022 so I would say yeah 6 at least 6 years I've been paying attention to this and kind of watched it develop I mean, even just the way people feel about Christian records. You know, when I was growing up being into metal, people constantly mocked Christian metal. Nobody listened to Christian metal and used to hear things, even with well-known bands that were good, a band like Trouble, who I really like. People would say, oh, they're a Christian band, but... People, People would have to give a disclaimer to admit to their friends that they liked a Christian band. And there was this idea that, oh, all Christian music sucks. It's not good, and it's just trying to sell records to stupid Christians. But people have started to realize there were actually some very good Christian bands, Christian metal bands. People have finally acknowledged that. I never had a problem, personally. I never had a problem with Christian music. But there was this sort of expectation that you give a disclaimer. I mean, I was hanging out with some friends here, I guess this is probably 2018, we went for a hike over on the coast here, and I was with a bunch of metal guys who I don't normally hang out with. I was friends with one of them. Very cool guy. He's one of the biggest horror movie collectors in, uh, as far as I know, the world. 
He has a massive horror movie VHS collection, and he's been in documentaries, but really fun, awesome guy. But it was funny because I was playing Manila Road in my car, and he was like, oh yeah, who, as far as I know, aren't Christian, but there are some themes in there. Maybe they are, I don't know. I've never thought of Manila Road as a Christian band. They're very, they're warriors of light, is how I'd put it. They're a metal band that focused entirely on the light. So maybe there's some confusion. Maybe there are elements of Christianity that I don't really notice as much as other people. But he, he made a comment where he was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, they're they're one of the best. They're good for a Christian band. They're amazing for a Christian band. He was a fan. I mean, this guy, he was a fan of Manila Road. And he was excited that I was playing them in my car. And then he, he made a comment where he was like, oh, you know, you know, he's another good Christian band. He's like trouble. And I was like, I got I got trouble here in the car, too. <laughs> Uh, but it was this thing where you kind of have to give a disclaimer or you have to preface it, but like, they're good. They're one of the best Christian bands. They're good for a Christian band. But I think that's becoming less common because I think, I think this kind of relates to Christianity becoming more pagan, especially the way that it's become a part of the counterculture where I think people are more comfortable with it. It's no longer dominating our institutions like it once did. And so I think people, I think a big part of it, beyond just the the trend of it all, and trend isn't just a, you know, trend comes across like a bad word. It's not, it's not a bad word. It can be a very bad word, and I often use it to, to denigrate things. Oh, it's, that's just a trend. But trend, it just means that it's a pattern. It just means that it's part of the zeitgeist, the mycelium effect where it's like a memo went out among the mycelium that this is cool now, that this is something to do. And so a lot of different people get into it. Some of them are posers, but not everybody. Not everybody who hops on a trend is a poser. You know, sometimes it's just, it's the way the wind is blowing. But beyond just the trend of it, and beyond the fact that like it's now kind of a counterculture statement to be a Christian, part of it too is that I think that the, the loosening of the institutional grip on Christianity has made people realize the mystical value of it. Because I think that was completely obscured. Like when I was growing up, like the way you felt about Christianity was that it's just this set of rules and political opinions and these rituals, but you didn't really get a mystical feeling from the Christian people you knew. You certainly didn't get a mystical feeling from the role that it played in politics. But I think people have kind of gotten in touch with that mystical side of Christianity, and Jordan Peterson played a role in that. And I think many of these young men who have become allegedly devout Christians in recent years, I know, it's not, I can't tell you that every single person, but a big chunk of them, I know, heard Jordan Peterson talk about it. But some of those people would never admit that. And that's why he's kind of a gateway where sometimes even though somebody serves as a gateway to people, they're often embarrassed to admit it for whatever reason. Maybe because it's not the coolest, maybe because it's not the purest variation. It's not the purest form of whatever they're into. It's like you think about the gateway bands. Like at this point, I don't think there's anybody who would be embarrassed to admit Metallica was their gateway to metal because Metallica is cool. But if somebody's really in, like, like you think about somebody who's like really deep into black death, black or death metal, there was definitely a time period when I was a teenager or even in my twenties 
where it wouldn't have been cool to be like, well, what got me into all this is Metallica. Like, even though it's inevitable that something like that served as your gateway, when you're really into, like, the fringes of an interest, it's not very cool to admit that you got into it in the most obvious way. And there's more embarrassing versions of that. I mean, for some people, it might be like, well, I got into death metal through Slipknot. I can understand being a little embarrassed about that. But Jordan Peterson is not Slipknot. He's more of a Metallica. Um, But I think people don't want to admit the influence that he had on them, for one, because he's not a Christian. For one, because he's, he's always taken a very agnostic approach. You know, when he was asked whether he believes in God, he said, I don't know how to answer that. It's personal. I'm not sure. But he's like, I try to live in such a way. He said, I try to live as if God was real. And that's not a new idea. That's been an idea that's come up in philosophy going back centuries. The idea of like, I don't know if I believe in God, but I'm going to live and operate as if God was real. I do believe in God. You know, whatever that means to somebody, I don't need to define it. But, you know, I started to get that feeling when I was in my late teens that I did believe in God, but I wasn't ready to admit it. And I won't go off on that. I know I've spoken about that before, but I was trying to find other words for it. I was trying to find other ways of describing it. And then I reached a point in my life where I was just like, oh, you know what? It turns out that's just the the best and the easiest way to describe it. And some of that came through my own mystical experiences. And it just became much easier. I mean, I, I experienced the same thing as an artist, as silly as, as it is to say, we're like spending years being like, well, I'm not an artist. I'm just a guy who like I draw things sometimes and sometimes I do this. I do these creative things, but I don't really know how to describe it. Because And I mean, the reason for that is because it's so pretentious to say you're an artist. It's so loaded to say you're an artist. But I did reach a point where if, if I'm forced to describe myself, I don't have a problem saying I'm an artist because it turns out that's the word that was invented for that reason. Just like the word God. You know, where it's like you can find all these different ways to describe God. You can use different languages. But it turns out all of these things are essentially describing God. So I don't I don't relate to Jordan Peterson's. Well, I wouldn't say I don't relate to it. I understand it. But I, I would say that Jordan Peterson's response to that question of like, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I try to live as if God was real. I understand that. And I think that's actually a very intelligent, good response. That's not my take. But I think it's a great take, and I think it's very interesting and almost biblical in its own way that a guy who who gives a very agnostic take on Christianity actually influenced all of these young men to become real Christians. A guy who is not a Christian, and I would describe as something of an agnostic, you know, not to put a word on him, but, you know, his responses are very agnostic. But a guy who is basically an agnostic, an intellectual agnostic, who gives his own sort of intellectualized, philosophical interpretation of the Bible, actually influenced people to become real Christians. That's incredible. And that's almost biblical in a sense. That it's a guy who doesn't even fully believe, he doesn't even participate in the orthodoxy, actually encouraged people to become orthodox. I mean, that phenomenon is amazing to me. But people do have this sense of revisionism. 
where it's like sometimes they don't want to admit how they actually got introduced to something. Sometimes they don't want to admit what actually influenced them and they'll dance around that. And I totally understand that. You know, there are probably things in my life that influenced me that I wouldn't readily admit. It just, it feels like maybe you feel like you've traveled so much farther than that, that going back and saying, this is what helped get me started on that road almost feels like, um, I don't know. It almost feels like you're giving it too much credit, but I'm a firm believer in giving things credit more and more, more and more. I feel like giving things credit. Like, I mean, a good example of that, just to use art as another example, you know, the artist Nick Blinko of Rudimentary Peni was a huge influence on me and did influence the direction that my drawings took. I don't look at my drawings today and go, oh, it's I'm just doing a Nick Blinko thing. I don't think I'm doing that at all. There are obvious similarities, obvious similarities. And that's one of the biggest comparisons I get. Like even a few years ago, my friend's boyfriend in town here, I, I didn't really know him very well, but he saw some of my drawings and he was like, have you ever heard of Nick Blinko? And I didn't expect him to know that because, yeah, Rudimentary Peni has a big cult following. Rudimentary Peni is well known if you you know, know about punk music and dark music, but I didn't expect this guy. He didn't, he was just a guy with like a beard and glasses. I guess you would expect him to know, but I was a little surprised and I was like, yeah, I love Nick Blinko. And even though I wouldn't say that I've just been riffing on a Nick Blinko influence all these years, like my subject matter, my overall style, I don't think looks like a Nick Blinko ripoff or anything at this point. He was a huge influence on me when I was a teenager you know, when I was like 14, 15 years old and I was introduced to rudimentary peni, my interest in punk died right there. I realized that my year-long flirtation with punk rock ended in that moment. You know, I found the Misfits and Samhain and I found rudimentary peni and I realized that everything else that punk represented was of little to no interest to me. And I, I can seriously cite that moment as when my interest in punk pretty much stopped because I was like, this is what I was looking for. This is the jewel that I was looking for when I got interested in punk rock. It was rudimentary peni. It was Nick Blinko. And I would never like, you know, as much as I don't, I don't want to just say like, oh, I'm a Nick Blinko influenced artist. I don't want to say that because it's not true. Like I wouldn't say that I'm just doing a Nick Blinko thing, even though it's detailed black and white stippling, crammed with detail, I would never just, I would, I don't feel that that's what I'm doing, even though the influence is obvious. And so I wouldn't want to just broadcast that, but I also can't revise my own history. And it's also nothing to be embarrassed about to say that there's no shame in being influenced by Nick Blinko, obviously. Um, but, uh, I can understand though, why, you know, that's, that's just one example. Like there's, my life is filled with a million other examples of things that I might be a little more embarrassed to admit. I might be a little more em embarrassed to admit like what sparked my interest that developed into something else. I don't know what that is. I don't know why we feel a sense of shame about that, but we all do for one reason or another. We all do, but I do believe in giving credit. And I also look at things, you know, what's a net positive? You know, what is a net positive? Jordan Peterson, going back to him, the Metallica of modern philosophy, <laughs> you know, he's such a net positive. That's what gets me about this manufactured controversy. 
you know, especially for guys who are otherwise unfocused and aimless, his influence has been such a net positive. But the reason I actually brought him up entirely, or, or to begin with, is uh, he made a statement recently where he was like, the only people who are anonymous online are scoundrels. And they should man up and say things under their real name, which is a different statement than saying there should be legislation mandating that people can only use the Internet under their given name. He was not saying that people should only be able to... He's not saying that people should be legally required to do that. He was saying just in terms of integrity, people should say things that they can put their own name to. Which is funny because he's heavily influenced by Solzhenitsyn, whatever his name is, the Russian guy who was persecuted under communism, who actually wrote his books that heavily influenced Solzhenitsyn, uh, Richard Nixon. Um, I'm unfamiliar with his work, you know, but if you've listened to any Jordan Peterson, he constantly brings this guy up because he's one of the first people who really revealed the horrors that were taking place under Soviet communism. But people were pointing out, they were like, dude, you're you're super into Solzhenitsyn. Um, he wrote under a pen name. You know, where's this coming from? And you realize very quickly it was a baby boomer moment where it's like this is an older man who came up in a different era and he's probably just upset about trolls. You know, he's probably just he that statement of like, if you're not man enough, you know, basically... If you, if you truly believe what you're saying, you should never say it anonymously. And anonymity just produces scoundrels. You know, that kind of statement. He probably had just read some nasty troll comment from somebody anonymous. He, I doubt that he was commenting on anonymous people who are doing something more productive. He was probably simply giving a, an immediate reaction to just an anonymous troll. And it's important to remember that. And it's also important to be like, what's his age? He's what? Like probably in his mid to late 50s? You know, he's an older guy. He came up in a different generation. It makes complete sense that he would have a different perspective on that. Not so you can dismiss what he says, even though I disagree with that. But it's just, he has a different perspective on that. He's an older man who has a much different relationship to the internet. He has a much different platform. And it's important to note that he wasn't encouraging legislation. He wasn't saying there should be rules requiring that people can only interact online under their real names. But it was a short-sighted comment, even with his own philosophy in mind, because he's so informed by people who had to. You know, he, his, his work is heavily influenced by people who had to use pseudonyms to avoid persecution, to get their work out there. So there's a level of hypocrisy, or he just wasn't thinking that out fully. He was probably reacting emotionally to trolls, which is another important thing to remember, is how much, you know, people will make a statement, and they're probably just thinking about the last thing that happened to them. He's probably just thinking about the fact that some, you know, you think about a guy like that, he must get so much anonymous hate. He must have so many people who send him messages and emails, who post things on his accounts, just trying to upset him. That's probably what he was responding to. But I saw where a lot of people were being like, here's why Jordan Peterson sucks. Like people who otherwise have a lot in common with Jordan Peterson were really upset by that. 
And they're like, oh, see, I knew he sucked. I told you he sucked. But once again, when you elevate somebody too high, when you make somebody out to be a hero, they're only going to disappoint you. But it was like, don't take that perspective. Don't read too far into what he said. Because he is wrong. He's completely wrong about that. I'll say that. You know, anonymity is important. Being able to use a pseudonym is important, especially in today's world, where there's a lot, there's not just censorship. The censorship doesn't surprise me. It's the amount of encouragement and justification there is for that censorship. It's the common people, the sorts of views that common people have, and the flat-out lying they do. Like when my friend Chasen wrote, he's a guy that I used to work with, really great guy, Chasen. Uh, he, he did stand-up comedy for a little bit, just open mic sort of stuff. But he's more of like a, kind of a, what do you call it, like a witty... Uh, he writes, um, he's like a humorist. You know, he writes funny articles that also offer social commentary, and he writes for various online publications. And I always enjoy his writing. It's very funny. It's kind of old school. You know, I think he's a couple years older than I am, but he writes in this very old school way. Like, his sense of humor is kind of old school. You can tell, like, who he was paying attention to when he was young, like the, the style of humor he was into. I, I always enjoy what Jason has to say. And a, a couple years ago, Chasen wrote an article about censorship, and I, I think I talked about it on here, but he just said something that most of us, you know, you know, me and most of my friends would just readily agree with, which is just that when you encourage censorship and so-called cancel culture, and that's a phrase I, I try not to use, but when you encourage that stuff, it's like what you're going to end up with, as he said, is you're going to have like, you're going to have creativity that has the value of, you know, a, a hotel lobby painting created by children. And that's true. I mean, when you look at the TV shows that are coming out and the movies that are coming out, they basically are the equivalent of a hotel lobby painting done by children. And he defended Louis C.K. because he's a big stand-up comedy fan. He defended Louis C.K. And this woman that I know that I used to hang out with a lot... Like, I posted that article online, and she she's very pro-censorship. She's, she's very much a witch hunter in this current climate and has been for some years. It's just the truth. You know, I don't even try to say that to insult her. She's simply a witch hunter, and she it's amazing how opposed to free expression she is. But not just that, but she, she was very dishonest in the way she responded, and she was like, Louis C.K. didn't get canceled. And yeah, he has a stand-up comedy special that just came out the other day, and he's still popular. He has a level of fame that you can't get rid of entirely, especially given that he produces and releases his own material. But he did get shut out, and you could say it was justified. He's a pervert. Maybe, maybe he did. I'm not even trying to take a stand one way or another. Like, maybe he did something wrong. I'm willing to admit that. I don't typically defend perversion. But the truth is, is that people did go after him. He did have to duck into the shadows for a while. No, they didn't kill him. They didn't ruin his entire life. But he got a significant amount of grief. His opportunities shriveled up. And I, I'm not even somebody who really, I don't know, Louis C.K. wouldn't be my go-to as far as examples to use. But in this article that my friend wrote, he talked about Louis C.K. for a second 
And this this woman that I know though was like, nothing happened to him. She's like, what happened is people are just sick of edgy humor. She was basically using like a um, Adam Smith, like freehand of the market or whatever it is, you know. And uh, she was like, nothing happened to him. The, the audience just decided they didn't like edgy humor anymore. And they like, and she actually said this. She's like, they just decided they would prefer someone refreshing like Hannah Gadsby, who is universally considered among comedy fans to be unfunny. Basically, like people have said, like what she does isn't even humor. Like she's just, she just does cultural social commentary for people who agree with her. And I've only seen snippets of her, so I can't comment, but you know, she just panders to a certain crowd and maybe she's serving a purpose. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try to be fair here, but it blew my mind that this person that I used to spend time with felt that, oh, Louis CK, nothing happened to him. He didn't get canceled. Nobody came after him. They just decided they didn't like edgy humor anymore, and the audience decided that they prefer Hannah Gadsby, stuff that's refreshing like that. That was her point. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but all of that was in there, and that blew my mind. I was like, you're lying. You're, for one, you're, you're being dishonest. It's one thing to say Louis C.K. deserved what happened to him. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give any pushback on that. I would just say that's how you feel. You know, that's how you feel. But she was being flat out dishonest about what actually happened to him. And I, I responded to her because I wasn't going to let that go. And I was like, so you're saying the market decided the comedy market. First of all, you're assuming that there's one market for comedians as if there's one audience who were fans of Louis C.K. who all together got the message that, oh, we don't like edgy humor anymore. So instead, the same audience that our fans of Louis C.K. instead decided to spend their money on Hannah Gadsby. And I said to her, I was like, there might be a little bit of crossover in their fan base, but I can guarantee you that their fan base isn't one mass. The sort of people who like Louis C.K.'s humor are not the same audience that likes Hannah Gadsby's humor. Like I said, there, there's probably crossover. Maybe there were Louis C.K. fans who were like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of, of this, this guy's shit. I don't like what he did. Instead, I'm going to focus on supporting comedians who support, who do things that I like, that are socially and politically conscious in a way I like. Maybe that describes a very small fraction of people. But the way she framed this was that it was like the free market decided. It was like this Adam Smith sort of idea, like the free market decided... The audience themselves, this singular, single-minded audience decided that, oh, we're sick of edgy, we're sick of edgelords. There's a phrase I hate. We're sick of edgelords like Louis C.K., so instead we're going to support Hannah Gadsby as if that happened. And I was like, this is just dishonest. This is just flat-out dishonest. And it kind of blew my mind because that's the sort of dishonesty that's been happening where people are flat out lying. They're saying things are happening for reasons that are not just at odds, but the complete opposite of what actually happened. And um, it just kind of blew my mind where it's like it'd be one thing if you simply said he deserved to have to hide for a little while. He deserved to have all the media and all of these people at his throat for a while. 
If that was what she said, I would say, well, that's, you know, it came out that he was a pervert, that he was coercive, that he liked to masturbate in front of women who felt like they couldn't say no, I think is what it was. I think I think what came out of that, not to get too into the Me Too thing, but I think what ended up coming out is that he would ask women like he had a producer job or something earlier in his career where he would ask women if he could uh, jerk off in front of them and they felt pressured to say yes. So they said yes. They felt like he abused his position of power, like a boss asking to sleep with a woman and her doing it because she felt like her job demanded it. I could completely understand if she felt that that justified him having to hide and tuck his tail between his legs and lose opportunity. But she framed it as if there was this single audience that decided they simply now prefer the Hannah Gadsby style of humor. You recognize that when things get censored, when a certain force takes over the culture, they will use that kind of dishonesty to explain what happened, to retcon what happened, to revise history. And I believe that's always happened. That's not new. But you recognize that that's what that is. It's this revisionism. And that example was so absurd to me. Like, I couldn't even believe she brought up Hannah Gadsby. I couldn't even believe that was her example. All those Louis C.K. fans are just sick of edgy humor. And then he comes back, and guess what? People love him again. Because the market decided. Once it was advantageous for him, once he was in the shadows long enough... He came back out, and now people are extremely excited. There are still people who hate him, but people are excited because the market will decide, and the market has decided that they still want to give Louis C.K. money to hear his jokes because he's good at it. You don't have to like his humor. You don't have to like him, but Louis C.K. is good at what he does. That's obvious. And the market decided that they like what he does, and they still do. Even people who probably feel that he's a shitty guy. And I said this to her, too. I was like, here's the thing. Because people felt that he shouldn't be able to do what he does professionally for a while or permanently. I mean, there's people who feel that he shouldn't be allowed to do anything ever again. And I said to her, it's like, I could understand if he was a janitor in a school or something being like, hey, we don't want a pervert working there. But I was like, don't you want like, like we have perverts in our society what do we do with them? And his, his act too, like, you know, I'm not a, I'm certainly not a Louis C.K. aficionado. Like I don't, I've seen maybe one or two of his specials years ago, which I found funny. Like I thought there was some funny stuff. There was some funny stuff in there. Um, but, uh, like, don't you want a pervert to be on stage telling jokes, especially given that a lot of his humor is about him being a piece of shit. Like, doesn't that seem like a good role for a pervert? Doesn't, doesn't being a stand-up comedian seem like a good fit for a scumbag? And there are comedians who pretend they're scumbags who aren't. There are comedians who pretend they're perverts that aren't. But this guy, given it came out that this guy is a genuine pervert, doesn't that seem like a good fit? The fact that he's on stage basically talking about being a pervert, basically talking about being a piece of shit sometimes, that seems like a good fit to me. So it's like if we all have roles that we have to you know, take in the society, isn't it better that he's a comedian rather than him being in a different role? Isn't it better that instead of working in an office, he's on stage 
you know, kind of making a mockery out of himself and, and mocking other things. It seems like a better fit to me. And she actually agreed to that. To her credit, she actually agreed with that. Well, she was like, you kind of have a point there. And I was like, well, exactly. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of stand-up comedians have actually been pieces of shit by society's standards. It's not a moral position. It's not... No comedian has ever been... You know, being on stage as a comedian is not the moral high ground. And I think people forget that pretty quickly and easily. But we do have comedy now that's very much virtue signaling. We do have comedy now that is claiming to come from a moral high ground. And people do that with musicians. They do it with everything. But I've never understood that in the arts. I've never understood that in creativity, where the idea that in order to do that, you have to be politically, socially, and morally correct. Especially when the material that you cover, especially when your subject matter isn't morally, socially, or politically correct. You know, I just, I don't know. It doesn't make much sense to me to come from that point of view that people in those positions who do those things need to be right. But, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that that argument took place, even though I'm trying not to trash her here, but I it was a flat-out dishonest argument that she was offering. And I'm glad she said it because it made, I, up to that point, I didn't realize that somebody, not just that somebody would do that, but that somebody I know would try to make an argument like that. That they would try to say that censorship or, you know, chasing somebody into the shadows with a pitchfork didn't happen. And rather, it was simply the market deciding. The people decided they didn't like edgy humor. I must have missed the memo on that. I must have missed that. When all those Louis C.K. fans decided that they just didn't like edgy humor anymore, and that's why he's having a hard time doing anything publicly for two years. Just been a while, been a, been, been a couple of weeks since I ranted about censorship, and I don't use the phrase cancel culture because that's mind control. And if you notice, when people talk about cancel culture, they get into an argument about cancellation and what that means. And it's a stupid phrase. That's why I try to stick with the basics like free speech and censorship because the catchphrase cancel culture, every time it comes up now, if you see people discussing it, it becomes a debate over whether it's real and it becomes a debate over what that means when we all know what it means. We all know what it's referring to. But I think the word cancel because the word cancel makes sense when we're referring to people like Roseanne, when we're referring to these celebrities and actors and comedians who actually have their shows canceled. I mean, I think the most absurd example is Roseanne. That still blows my mind. Like Roseanne's character on shows has always been like she's a, an obnoxious white trash woman who secretly has a heart of gold. That's always been Roseanne's persona, that she's like a crazy, obnoxious, trashy woman who has a heart of gold. And I think that's kind of who she is in person, too. And it just blew my mind that they were willing to have a reboot of the show Roseanne 
And because she made inappropriate comments one night online, they were willing to kill her off of her own show and continuing, continue it on without her. That showed me that this whole thing has no boundaries. Like, you're willing to kill the main character who the entire show revolves around and continue it on without her because of this. You know, that, that's a level of insanity I didn't completely expect. I don't know if there's other examples of that happening, but just the fact, not that they would simply cancel the show, but they would literally kill the main character and change the name of the show. And, and the irony of that, I don't know if it's irony, but the funny part of that is that that's based, the reasons why they wrote her off her own show, the things that she was doing in person, aren't that far off from who her character is on the show. It, to me, that wasn't inconsistent. Because, I mean, the show Roseanne, which was a great show, but the show Roseanne, you know, it was very much like, oh, this woman's a lot to deal with. This woman is, is obnoxious. But you know what? She's actually very likable and a good person. Which, as far as I know, that's the real Roseanne Barr. It's like, I've seen long interviews with her. You know, she's wild. Her, her mind goes all over the place. She's unfiltered. But you, you get the impression that she's a good person. But yeah, the whole, the cancellation thing, though, that phrase makes sense when we're referring to show cancellations, and it's part of a larger phenomenon of censorship, but I just refer to it as censorship. I just refer to it as a, an attack on free expression. I don't want to get caught up in the buzzwords and the catchphrases like cancel culture, because you can see where anybody who uses that now, even though it's convenient and we all know what it means, it becomes a debate over what cancel culture means. It's like the example I used of when someone compares something to Nazi Germany. You end up, you're no longer discussing the thing that you were comparing Nazi Germany to, and you just end up discussing the comparison itself. You end up discussing whether it's truly comparable to Nazi Germany. So you lose your entire point. It's the same thing with the phrase cancel culture, where if you use the phrase cancel culture, you end up debating the phrase cancel culture. And you've lost your point. Just kind of wild. And in that whole debate, too, people will often be like, well, these aren't the first people to do this. This isn't the first time in history that people have used censorship and tried to limit free expression as a means of political, social, and cultural control. And so, of course not. That's always been a very effective tool. You know, the right-wing Christians used to do it all the time. Yeah, they did. I remember. Wasn't a fan at the time. I wasn't a fan at the time, and I'm still not. But who's doing it now? Who is doing it now? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about what's happening now. We're not talking about what was happening in 2002. We're not talking about the Dixie Chicks. And look at, look at what the Dixie Chicks did. They're just called the Chicks. Hey, hey, Chicks. They're just called the Chicks now. They've just been, um, 
the Dixie Chicks showed that they are wholly subservient now because nobody even had to tell them in summer 2020 that they had to change their name. Nobody had to even tell them to remove the word Dixie from their name. They didn't even have to get quote-unquote canceled. They just willingly did it. They just willingly said, oh, now we're the Chicks because this is what everyone's doing. We don't want to be offensive. We're going to do it at the same time everybody else did. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt us. We're just the chicks now. Don't hurt us. We're just the chicks. Don't hurt us. We're just the chicks now. You know, as you can see where they just fell right in line. But, uh, you know, we're not talking about when they got in trouble for making whatever. I don't even remember what they did. It's been so long. Back in the early 2000s, post 9-11, they got in trouble for making some for questioning Bush or doing something to that effect. And I didn't like that then. And if you want to talk about the history of that behavior, we can go back to the beginning of time. We can talk about every government. We can talk about every institution. We can talk about every cultural power who has always done that because that's what they do. But what are we talking about right now? What are we observing right now? Why does it always have to be? But they did this for so long. They tried to cancel Harry Potter because it was witchcraft. The Christian evangelicals tried to stop people from reading Harry Potter because it was witchcraft. I didn't like it then. Didn't like it then. Who's trying to cancel Harry Potter now? Who, who's trying to, you know, who, who's trying to, you know, censor the author of Harry Potter now? Turns out everybody has a beef with Harry Potter. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. If it wasn't evangelicals trying to ban Harry Potter books for be, for promoting witchcraft 20 years ago, it's people trying to come down on the author of Harry Potter today for simply believing in biological women. Seems like everybody has a reason to go after Harry Potter, except for me. Who knew that I would be the one who 20 years ago I didn't care you know, 20 years ago, like, I felt like Harry Potter was fine. Today, I feel like Harry Potter's fine. <laughs> you know, like, who knew that I would just, my opinion on Harry Potter would just be very neutral. A book I've never read. A series that I've never really cared about in any way. Who knew that I would just have a pretty steady, tolerant opinion of Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, always. <laughs> you know, but that's the world we live in. Where if the cultural power then isn't upset at you, the new cultural power is. And they'll find their own reasons. Because everything has fallen. Everybody's fallen. You can always find a reason to go after somebody. You can always find something wrong with somebody. And that's why you resist the urge to do that. You know, like with the Jordan Peterson thing. People being really upset that he was criticizing internet anonymity. Don't jump at that too quickly. He's just giving an emotional response to getting trolled. Don't turn on Jordan Peterson because you're an anonymous internet user or you follow anonymous internet users and you don't like what he had to say about that. He's a baby boomer who has his own opinion on that, who has his own perspective. Don't do what they already did to him for a different reason. And if you didn't realize that he's fallen too, I don't know what to tell you. I think he would probably tell you the same thing. 
very neutral guy. A guy that's very accessible to many different types of people. I don't think there's I don't think you need to turn on a guy like that. He's fine. But anyway, you just heard the the ramblings of a 36-year-old. How was that? How was that for you? I should get some rest. I'm, that nap is that little boost of energy I got from the nap is wearing off. No, I, I would benefit from seeing people's ages. I think age is relevant. I think age is often more relevant than other factors. Not relevant in the sense that you can sum someone up based on their age. Not that a 17-year-old doesn't have wisdom. Not that a baby boomer has more or less wisdom than anybody else. But everybody has their perspective, and I find that someone's age tells you a lot about somebody. Like when someone's offering cultural commentary, it's very interesting to know their age because it tells you about the world they grew up in. Like hearing an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old offer cultural commentary today is going to come from a much different place than it does for, for me or somebody older than me because they grew up in a different time with different technology, with different cultural interests, different music, different fashion. And that's all going to inform somebody's perspective. And simply reading about stuff that happened before you were born, you know, that it doesn't really change what your experience has to offer. You know, when I talk about my childhood, as I do often, it's all experiential. And I can't possibly offer much insight into what happened before I was born, just like I can't offer insight on what teenagers went through who were in high school two years ago. I don't really know what that was like. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to look. I wouldn't even know where to look. I wouldn't even know where to look for that. I see some of what they say. I see some of what they do. I know a little bit about what they're into and what they're like. But the reality is nobody knows what that was like unless they were there. And that shapes somebody's opinions. That shapes their perspective. I mean, I think about how many opinions that I have today that are influenced by something somebody said to me who I knew. I have opinions today that are informed by things somebody said to me 20 years ago that came just through an interaction, just through an experience. And the longer you live, you know, the more that those things end up shaping you, the more that your experiences shape you, which is obvious. Everybody knows that. But I do think age is a big factor. And I think if there was one tool that would be very useful for me, I wish that I knew people's ages right off the bat. Maybe not even the specific age. Like, I don't need to know that somebody is 26. But if somebody's in their mid-20s, that tells me about their experiences on some level. It tells me about where they are in life. It tells me about how long they've been considering their ideas. And it also tells me that maybe some of their ideas are temporary. While I have some of the same ideas, many of the same ideas that I had 10 years ago, I have a lot of different ideas too. I have some different ideas just in the last year or two. So, you know, when someone's younger and they're offering commentary, you realize that they have a lot more life to live. And even if they have wisdom or insight where they're at right now, because everybody does, they're going to gain more wisdom and insight. Or maybe they're going to get dumber. Maybe they're going to get dumber. But still, you can tell that their ideas aren't fully formed. And you can see with older people that 
well, they have a lot more experience and they have insight into the past that we don't have. They've also been out of touch for much longer. They've been who they are. They've had a fully formed identity for a much longer period of time. And so I'm interested in people's age. I'm interested in when people grew up. I'm interested in where people lived. And so if there was one tool that revealed it, if there was one piece of identifying information that would be very helpful, especially in our world today, where everybody's participating in the same conversations, everybody's so dogmatic, everybody's so adamant, if there was one piece of information that would really help sort it all out, it would be knowing how old somebody is. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my.